Dan, and it's a privilege to be with you and to have been with your men over this weekend, so many of them. I told the first gathering that I'm just really encouraged to have had the opportunity to be here and, first of all, to see how many men were able to gather together on a weekend and devote themselves to studying the Scriptures. I know there are many things that prevent us oftentimes and things we can't sort out things we can't change, but to see so many, and the earnestness that was there. I was challenged and encouraged um, to interact with you men and to hear you pray, and with you young men, and teenagers, and just beyond that, uh, who were there, and to see your earnestness and to see the discipling that's going on uh, along that way, I was really encouraged. And so it's a pleasure to me to simply get to be a part of uh, what God's doing here by sharing with you this morning. And uh, Pastor Dan mentioned uh, my wife coming, and so I told her after being here a little bit, I said, you know, here, I'm actually here as uh, Tammy's husband. Uh, you know, she's the one that's known, and, uh, and because of her, then I get to come, and I have to be careful maybe not to ruin her reputation uh, as she's returning here. But this morning, I want to look with you at Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to go to 10, 19 to 25. But I'm going to say a number of things before I read the text. I try to set up where we're going and what we're doing. And one to tie in uh, for some of you who were with us over the weekend and for those of you who weren't, we were looking at sanctification. How do we grow in holiness? How do we grow in Christ-likeness? And one of the main things I was trying to stress along the way was that the Bible does give us commands. We're called to do certain things and not to do other things. But those commands aren't for us to find our own strength to obey, but those commands are always rooted in the gospel. It's because of what God has done in Christ that we can obey. And in light of what He has done, we should obey, these kind of things. So we don't, on the one hand, think, well, you know, I just now have to let go and let God. Or on the other hand, think, I've got to churn this out myself it is in light of the glorious gospel that then our lives are changed and we rely on that for power and strength. And in the text we saw over the weekend, every one of them was, here's a command, or a string of commands, because of the gospel. The next text, string of commands, because of the gospel. This morning, we're going to take up one that says, here's the truths of the gospel, and in light of that, here are the commands. So I just mentioned that so we see this train of thought, and I want to encourage you, as you read through the Scriptures, watch for this, because it's everywhere. It's all over the place. The uh, New Testament is clear again and again that these imperatives, these commands are rooted in gospel truths. So we're going to see this here, but there's kind of one introduction, and here's a second one, then uh, just to set the scene for what we have in Hebrews, because we are dropping right in here in the middle of it, and I think it's so helpful to understand any text in light of what all's going on in this letter. It's written to Hebrews, so Jewish believers. They're in the first century. And as you go through the letter, you begin to see that these believers are suffering. And another chapter or two after our text, he will say, you have not yet resisted to the point of the shedding of blood. Every once in a while, I've heard that referred to, and people say, so see, they're not suffering yet. No, no, no. If you say, You've not yet resisted to the point of the shedding of blood. That means you're suffering a good bit. You just hadn't paid with your life yet. 
They're suffering a good bit more than anything I know. And there's other mentions about their property being taken in prison. They've visited some of their members in prison. They're in a hard time. And also, as you go through the letter, you begin to see one of the concerns is for them not to turn away from Christ, not to turn away from their profession of faith. Well, why is that? A number of things are here begin to show us uh, these people are being pulled to go back to Judaism, to go back to their old ways. They're leaving Judaism and, and uh, professing faith in Christ is what has brought this suffering upon them for at least two reasons. One, of course, they're saying that they are actually in the right line of Judaism by recognizing the Messiah. But about this time, there comes this split between the church and the synagogue. And increasingly, when Jewish folks come to faith in Christ, they're being kicked out of their families, kicked out of the community. And as difficult as that would be for us, emotionally and other things, it's doubly so here. Because not only is the family uh, people you love, but it is oftentimes where your job is. It's also your financial uh, safety net. So these people are going to lose their jobs. They don't have anywhere else to look for sustenance and for help and aid. So they're in a hard place. But added to that, they are beginning, Christians are beginning to face persecution from the state, from Rome. And for these, uh, for these Christians, this is going to be a new thing because Rome and all of its domains is requiring its people to be involved in what they're calling their traditional worship, typically involving uh, worshiping the emperor at one level or another. But they gave an exemption for ancient religions. And so Judaism was one of those. They could do their thing. There were a couple of those like that. But when Christianity begins to emerge and it becomes clear it's separate from Judaism, the Christians are wanting to say, hey, we're, we're, we actually have an ancient line here. And the synagogue is saying, no, they are no part of us. And Rome says, nope, you're a brand new religion. You must worship the emperor and the gods. And as the Christians refuse to do that, they suffer there as well. Suffering from their homes, suffering from the state. Some of them, no doubt, finding themselves in places where they're struggling simply to feed their children. You can imagine then the pressure. If that's where you are, you're seeking to be faithful to Christ, but now all these things have come crashing down upon you. And you're looking at your children with nothing to eat, and you probably begin to ask yourself, are we sure this is right? All our family says different. In fact, they say to us, come on back. Why do you have to be the weird one? Always from the day you were a kid, you got to be the weird one. You're running off with some new idea. Come on back. Is this God's blessing, really? Is this the right way if you're bringing this kind of suffering on your family? Surely it is not. Come back. This is why all through the letter you have these exhortations about not letting go of Christ. And probably none of us this morning are tempted to go back to Judaism. You would have to have come from Judaism to be tempted to go back to it. But we are tempted to go back to our old ways. Their old ways were Judaism. My old ways and yours are different, but there is that pull sometimes. To go back to pleasures of sin, which we've sought to avoid, to avoid suffering by compromising and going old ways. 
And this letter then is speaking to us, and it's holding out the glories of the new covenant, saying to these Jewish believers, this is so much better than anything you had before, and because it's so much better, how can you turn away? And it's striking that essentially the way God, speaking through the author of this letter, is saying is, in order to keep from being sucked in by the world, in order to persevere in the faith, we need to be amazed afresh at the glory of the gospel. And this is what he holds out again and again, the glory of Christ and his gospel. And when we come to this text, he has laid out some very deep doctrine, and he summarizes that in the first couple of verses, and then he gives us our exhortations, summarizing the gospel and then telling us how we should live in light of it. So with all that in mind, let me ask you to stand with me and honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word here at Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and thank you that we can gather around it this morning. Thank you that you have spoken to us, and you've not left us to ourselves to find our own way. We are painfully aware of our inability to find our own way. So thank you for speaking and giving us access to your word. We ask that you would help us to understand your word anew and afresh this morning. Empower me to speak your words, to make it clear and give us ears to hear. Stir our hearts and challenge them. Uplift us and empower us that we might obey you, that you might be honored and pleased. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. As I've been alluding, this is a central text here in the, how the whole letter works. And one of the neat things about it is that the flow of thought, the structure of it is so clear. So I want to point out to you how the, the thing moves and then go back and take it up piece by piece. You notice there in verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have, and he mentions something that we have, and then in verse 21, since we have, he's drawing from what he's been talking about. Here are two gospel privileges, two benefits of the new covenant. We have these things. And since we have them, then in verse 22, let us do one thing, let us do another. In verse 23, and then in verse 24, let us do another. Let us, let us, let us. And this is why I refer to this as the salad sermon, all this lettuce. But 
Two privileges, three responsibilities. And what I was talking about, gospel privileges, and in light of those, we should live in these three ways. We just want to walk through these and see what they are. The first gospel privilege there in verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, your translation may say uh, boldness or even access, and here, all the things he's been talking about before, speaking to these Jewish believers who know that in the old covenant, only the high priest and he once a year enters into the holy place in order to deal with God on behalf of the people. He's been talking about this, and he's reminding them, we, in this better covenant, now have access to God on a daily basis, an hourly basis. Since we have this, this is an amazing thing. And these Jewish believers would understand this, because probably in their own lifetime, before they heard the gospel, they thought in terms of someone goes into the holy place on our behalf, and he can only go there once a year. But one of the challenges, I think, for people like me, people who were blessed to grow up in the church and hear the gospel from an early age, and that's quite a blessing, but every situation has its challenge as well. And one of the challenges for folks like me is to fail to be amazed by this. I know I'm supposed to say I am, you know, and if you ask me, are you amazed at that? I'll say, oh yeah, I'm amazed. But oftentimes, not really. I can respond to that truth by going, oh yeah, mm -hmm, that's right. I mean, it's good, that's right. But the whole flow of what this text is saying to us is it has to begin with being amazed at this truth. It's the being amazed at this truth which empowers the living he's going to talk about. And so I have to take myself and look at this afresh and stay with it a moment and think about it in different ways to let it get through the armor of a cold heart. I have to think about where they were, and they understood this was a big deal to come into the presence of God. God made that very clear to them from early on. Leviticus, about chapter 10, they have the tabernacle first set up, Aaron's the priest, his sons, Nadab and Abihu. You say, set by who? Yeah, that's him. But um, They're going in, and they're offering the sacrifices. They've done it a few times, and they go in again, and the only thing the text tells us is they offered strange fire. And the point of that there is they did something different. Why did they do something different? The text doesn't tell us. My hunch, and it's only that, something subjective, is they've done it a few times, and so I said, ah, let's change it up a little bit. Let's do something different. And fire came out from the presence of God and consumed them. The folks are aghast, and Aaron's offended. Moses doesn't know what's happened, and he goes to the Lord, and the Lord says to him, I will be regarded as holy by all those who draw near to me. If I paraphrase that in our vernacular, he says, don't toy with me. It is a serious thing for sinful people to come into the presence of a holy God, and these men fail to reckon with that. The people of Israel got the message. Very careful about this in a number of ways. We need to remember that's what it was like. Why then do you and I have the privilege to come into His presence without the fear of death? 
Why wasn't there a sign at the door this morning? All those who enter take their life in their own hands. It could be appropriate in a number of different ways, but in the new covenant, that's what he says here. We now have confidence, a boldness, an assurance to come into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. This new and living way, it is beyond what was in the old covenant because He's opened it up for us through the curtain that is His flesh. We heard the text read earlier about the curtain in the temple being torn in two, this dividing thing being torn open as the body of Christ was torn open, and He has made this opening for us that did not exist before. And I still have to get this into my head a little bit. And when he, when he talks about confidence or access there with the word that's used, um, it is something like saying you have clearance. And so as I thought about this, I thought, okay, kind of sounds to me like um, um, security clearance, high-level security clearance into the presence of the king. Now, everything I know about high-level security clearance in the world today, I learned from movies. So I've you know, got quite a bank of knowledge. But it seems to me you've got to have two things to get you know, special access like that. You've got to be somebody important. They don't just grant security clearance to anybody. But then even if you're somebody important, you've got to have a clean record. At least you're supposed to. Not to have been involved in treason or something like that. You've got to have those things to get access. So I play it out in my own mind. As if I were coming to request access to the presence of God, and I'm coming apart from Christ, just me, just what I have, my own resources, and in my mind's eye, which is a little warped, I imagine myself coming for access. There's an angel, and of course, he's got a computer. So I want access, and he asks my name, and he types in Ray Van Est. He's going to see if I'm important enough, and the computer pops up, nobody. It's not looking very good for me. But he decides to do the background check anyway. And he does that. The screen just scrolls with a list of my sins. And it doesn't have to be what we think of the big sins because every one of those sins has, in parentheses by it, rebellion against the king. In fact, participation with the enemy, treason. I have no hope. I'm cast out on my ear. There's no way. I can have access to God. But then again, in my mind's eye, I come back now in Christ, redeemed in Him. I request access. Again, in my warped mind's eye, the angel recognizes my face and says, I think I remember this guy, but let's put his name in. And this time it says, child of the king. But it's kind of skeptical. It's like, I remember that long scroll of offenses. So let's punch that background check. And then it pops up and says, all files erased, stamped, washed in the blood of the Lamb, access granted. This is what he's saying we have. In spite of all that we are and all that we've done, we now have this access. And it's interesting. The text does not pause to make any application of this yet. Some application will be made a couple of verses later. But right here, right now, the only point needs to be the awe factor, the wow. We have been granted access to God. 
in spite of ourselves. That's the first privilege. And it's the privilege he's saying, you can't find this back in Judaism. You can't find this anywhere else. You can't find this in your deeds. You can't find this in any other religion. It is here and here alone. But that's not all. He goes on to say in verse 21, another privilege we have. Since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now, of course, in the Old Covenant, you have priests and you have the high priest. Here he says, we have a great priest over the house of God that is over the church now. This one, this Jesus who opened up this new and living way, not only did he open up that living way apart from any of our deeds, he knows not only can we not save ourselves, but if left to ourselves, we will end up closing the door on ourselves. So we have a great priest who stands there with his foot in the door to maintain our access. The great priest. But probably a number of you like me, and you didn't grow up with any priests around. Some of you may, in your background, in one setting or another, had people around that you called priests. Um, but I have to help myself think about what, what is that? And of course, in the Old Covenant, priests, in one way, are representatives. They come and they speak to the people on behalf of God. And then they go to God on behalf of the people and offer the sacrifices. And I can get my head around that. I understand representatives, at least somewhat, uh, in a variety of settings. And so I'm, for my own help, I think of um, a representative in the political sense. And if, if, I, if we're going to elect a representative, then again, I think we probably want two main things from such a person. We need somebody important because we want them to go into the halls of power and we want them to represent us. We want somebody, when they speak, people are going to listen. That's why if I were trying to you know, run for office here today and said, I'll be your representative, you'd say, well, I don't know. Because you'll go there and you'll say, I think we ought to do this. And they go, who cares? And move on. You want somebody with some clout. But if they're very important and very influential, but they don't know what life is like on your street, it's not going to be very helpful. Everybody might listen to them, but they won't know what you need. So we need somebody important, and we need somebody who understands our setting. And this is the very thing, all that has preceded this in the book of Hebrews has been arguing, that this great priest, our representative, he is God himself. In chapter 1, it mentions that he upholds all things by the word of his power. The one who is the agent of creation is my representative. This is representation I can't afford to pay for. The one who is greater than Moses, the one who is a greater priest than all of the Levitical priesthood, the one who supersedes all things, the king that's greater than David, the deliverer that's greater than Samson, and all these others, he is my representative. And not only is he great, but he is the one that this text, this book has said earlier, that we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. We could have no greater representative. He upholds all things by the word of his power, and yet he knows, he understands. And Hebrews has said, therefore he is able to comfort those who are afflicted because he has been through it. And this is the one that also the book of Hebrews says, he therefore ever lives to make intercession for us. 
because in the old covenant, you could get a pretty good high priest, and then he'd die on you, and you have to get another one. And even then, when he went in to give his offering, he had to make atonement for his own sin and then for the people. But we have this high priest who won't die. And we have this high priest who has no need to deal with his own sin, but deals only with ours. These are these privileges that need to wow us from the new covenant. That God would call us into his presence and that in spite of our continuing struggle with sin, we have an advocate before the Father who continues to plead our case and to hold open the door for us. And he's saying that you can't get this anywhere else. And in light of this, we ought to live a certain way. These three things. Let us do these things. And the first one there in verse 22 is, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And draw near, all the way through Hebrews, draw near is a phrase uh, dealing with worship either private or corporate worship. Uh, Earlier when he says, let us draw near to the throne of grace that we might obtain help and mercy in time of need, it's worship language. And there's several occurrences of this. So what he's saying here is, let us draw near to the presence of God. Let us engage in worship with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And in the flow of thought here, he's essentially saying, since we have that access to God we were talking about, use it. That's how you appreciate a gift. If somebody gives you a gift and you say it's great and you put it on the shelf and don't do anything with it, you don't appreciate it. Make use of this. Draw near to God. Worship Him in full assurance of faith. How do we have full assurance of faith? Sometimes, and probably all of you know better, but sometimes I think all of us are tempted to feel like, yes, I can draw near to God in full assurance of faith when I've done well this week. I've had a pretty good week. I said no to more sin than I said yes to. I can draw near to God in full assurance of faith. When we're saying that, then we're saying we can do this in full assurance of faith in ourselves. And of course, that's not what he's saying. Why can we today, why can you, right where you're sitting, why can you Draw near to God in full assurance of faith. It is because God has welcomed you by the blood of Christ. So no matter what your struggle was this week, and no matter if this week, this morning, that besetting sin has cropped up and tripped you up again, you will hear in your ear, perhaps, that condemning voice. Who are you? Who are you to draw near to God? Yeah, you sing those songs, but you're a hypocrite. I know the thoughts that were going through your mind a moment ago. I know what you did here. I know what you did way in the past. That, of course, is the accuser of the brethren. We draw near. You can draw near this morning because God has beckoned you. And notice what the rest of this text says in verse 22. In full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's saying this evil conscience, which continues to attack you, what the Puritans called the smiting conscience, we can respond to that. And when the enemy says, who are you? You're a sinner. And we want to argue with him, but we say, well, he's right. Then we respond back, you are right. And he says, look at you, behold a worm. And we say, yes, but behold the worm's God. 
I don't come on my own basis. I don't come in my own righteousness, but I come in the righteousness of Christ. He died on the cross for me. I come because he is beckoned and he is greater than you. Get out of my face. We draw near. Every one of us can draw near in this full assurance because of what Christ has done. And that evil condemning conscience, which binds so many believers in so many ways, we can be sprinkled clean from that. I don't mean in such a way that you do something today, it'll never bother you again. But as I told the men in the retreat, I mean, this is a weapon that you can continue to fight the evil conscience with day after day after day. As it keeps coming back and you keep putting it down and you keep drawing near to Christ. Now, I said earlier <clears throat> that part of what's going on in this letter is he's telling them how to keep from being sucked in by the world. And this is true here. In one sense, draw near to God. He's saying God's given you access, so use it. And in another sense, he's saying this is how you keep from being sucked in by the world. Draw near to God. Submit to him. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you, like James says. If you want to keep from being sucked in by the sin that's around you, the old ways that pull, you can't stand still. You've got to draw near to God. You're going to go one direction or the other. And so we relentlessly pursue God, drawing near to Him in faith. So that's the first responsibility, which is really a privilege as well, draw near to the Lord. But there's a second one there in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So in light of the glorious gospel, draw near to God, love Him, and then hold fast this confession of your hope without wavering. These people are suffering. And I don't know because it doesn't tell us, but I imagine, as it happens with many people, including me, when, when you suffer, you get confused. You might not be real sure what, what's going on and how does this work, and I think God's in control. I say I do, but I'm beginning to doubt. And he says, hold fast the confession of your hope. Lay hold of this and don't let go. There will be many times when we don't understand but we can hold fast to the confession of our hope. This is faith. In fact, it seems to me the Lord often takes us through those challenges where we can't see where things are going so that we might learn to hold fast and never let go. One of the examples that comes to my mind of this is John chapter 6. When Jesus has been talking about the bread of heaven, and people have gathered around, They've seen him feed them with food, so they like him talking about food until he does what he often does in the Gospel of John. He says something that's a bit scandalous sounding. And he says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And the people are offended and confused, as they should be, and they begin to go away. And first there, we sometimes give them a hard time, but understand they hadn't had a chance to read the Gospel of John yet. And it would sound like he's talking about cannibalism. And then Jesus, rather than chasing them down, says to the twelve, so are you going to leave too? And Peter, to paraphrase him, says essentially, well, Lord, we're kind of grossed out by what you said too. And we don't get it. It's not what we expected you to say, and it doesn't kind of sound right. 
but you have the words of life. And where else are we going to go? Sometimes I hear people talk about that, and it sounds like that's a lesser faith. That what they're supposed to say is, oh, we get it, we're with you. We did some serious exegesis. We know where we're going with. We're with you. But this is deep faith, really. It says to the Lord, Lord, we don't get you. This is not what we wanted you to say. It kind of flies in the face of what we understood. It's confusing. It's weird. It's scary. But there's nowhere else to go. So we're putting all our eggs in your basket and do with us as you please. That's holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. And when I think about this, I think about when we lived in Scotland and uh, visited the castle in Edinburgh, an impressive place, and there are these military museums in there, and I'm going along. And in one of them, there was this display telling the story of a certain officer. I don't remember the year, but it's in the time when they carried their banners into battle, and of course that was a big deal. The banner showed you where the armies were, and without them you get confused. I still always thought, I don't know anything about battle either, but I'd I don't think I'd be the, want to be the one when people are running at each other with weapons. I don't want to be the one carrying a flag. But it was important, crucial to the battle and their honor. And so this was in honor of a certain man. He was carrying the standard. And he went into battle, and he was, uh, he was wounded, and he fell. And so as would be typical, other men ran to the spot to grab the flag, to get it up quickly before everything was thrown into disarray. And they got there, and he was dead. And they couldn't pry his fingers loose from the standard. They tried and tried, and eventually they just had to pick up his dead body and hold him up and hold the flag and go forward with it. And therefore, this thing was done here in his honor because it was his task to hold fast to this thing. You don't drop it. You don't say, oops, carrying the banner in the battle. And he held fast even in death. Now, there may be some medical explanation for that. But that's the picture that comes to my mind when he says, hold fast the confession of your faith. Lay hold of that with a death grip. I want to go out holding fast to that confession of faith so that our hands can't even be pried loose because it is such a glorious gospel. That's challenging to me. In fact, in some ways, it's too challenging. It sort of appeals to my hoorah kind of side, then I think, but I'm not that good. He says to hold fast my confession of hope without wavering, and I waver in the face of little bitty adversity, much less what these people were doing. How does that work? Well, there's a little bit more in that verse that I haven't read yet this time through. There in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It's very important here that the text does not say, hold fast to your confession of hope because you can do it. Look down deep inside and find the strength to do this. I know you can. My ways of thinking are all messed up anyway, but uh, this no you can stuff never worked for me. I was too analytical. And I remember my last... Well, one of my last at-bats in summer baseball. I came up with men in scoring position and the game on the line. The coach called me over to, you know, give me a little pep talk. I was hitting decently. I need a hit here and do this. And what he said, he said, Ray, I want you to go up there and I just want you to know 
that you're going to hit the ball. He didn't think about who he was talking to. Because I walked into the batter's box thinking, how can I know? Because, I mean, I'd like to, and I have had some history of success, but I have also had some history of failure, and I really, there's no way for me to know this. I think I struck out. I was, <laughs> I was confused. It's important here that this text doesn't say, hold fast because you can do it. Hold fast for he who promised is faithful. Matthew Henry on this text says, we trust more in God's promises to us than in our promises to God. Thinking about this as well, I think about um, when we first moved back to Jen, we were there for a year before going on to Scotland, and uh, we had just our two oldest. <clears throat> and my oldest son, who's now 17, was, I guess, two or three. And um, we had this little apartment, big parking lot around us, and uh, a number of folks who drove very fast through the parking lot. So we, would, uh, we took both our little ones, and we knelt down beside them, watching these fast cars go by, and said, you see this? You go out there, one of those will run you over. Don't step onto the asphalt. And they say, that's pretty intense. Yeah, we want them to survive. Because the concrete went up, and then it changed colors. You don't go out there unless you're holding mom or dad's hand. Our dumpster to take the garbage out was across the, the parking lot, so I'd carry it over there. And then Nathan, there's two or three, says he wants to go. He wants to take the garbage out with me. So that's, that's fun. So we give him a little Walmart bag, tie him up a little bit of garbage. He's got his little garbage. I got my big garbage. And we start across the way. But we go up the sidewalk, and we get to the asphalt. And I reach down to him, and I tell him in a variety of different ways, hold fast to my hand. You remember, this is kind of dangerous out here. Hold fast my hand and don't let go. And he reached up his little hand, grabbed a hold of my larger hand, and my larger hand engulfed his. And we start across the parking lot, and we did this any number of times. And sometimes he'd do real well. He'd make it all the way there and all the way back, holding fast, doing what is right. But inevitably, from time to time, he'd see something that was of interest to him, and his little hand would let go. And what do you think I did? Let go and jump back and said, you're on your own, kid. hope you live. <laughs> of course not. But when that little hand let go, he didn't go anywhere because my bigger hand held fast. And what this text is saying to us is, reach up your little hand of faith and lay hold of God. And hold fast. Don't let go. But also understand that we're trusting not in the little hand of our faith, but in God's much bigger hand, which has laid hold of us and has promised He will never let go. And since He won't let go, be bold and hold fast to your confession of hope and faith in Him. So He tells us to draw near to God, to hold fast to our confession of hope. And then thirdly, He tells us in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And this is interesting wording here. It's kind of fun. He says, consider one another, first of all. Um, think about one another. But this, this word consider is, is a word that's often, maybe typically used in negative context. We don't tend to think of it this way just reading it here. But it's something like, I use an analogy, of uh, maybe the phrase, watch you like a hawk. 
You don't ever expect anybody to use that in a positive context. If your boss comes up and says, I'm watching you like a hawk, you think, "Uh uh-oh. But it seems that the author here is intentionally using something with a negative connotation to turn it to a positive. As if he were saying to us, church, I want you to notice one another. In fact, I want you to say to one another, I am watching you like a hawk. And the very first chance I get, I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to bless you. It's a more intense statement here. This assumes then that there ought be no way in the church for somebody to just slip through the cracks. It should not ever be possible that we say, oh, where's Joe? I don't know. He hadn't been here in a couple years, I think. We ought to know. We ought to be watching. There's nothing casual about this statement. It's very intentional that we're looking at one another and seeing that they're here, and looking for ways to speak into their lives to help them. Sadly, it comes more natural for us to look critically. I don't know about you, but I can find myself just ending up there, looking and noticing what's wrong. He's telling us, in light of the gospel, in light of the grace that's been poured out on you, in light of the fact that Christ died for and loves the church, then you within the church must be those who are watching carefully over one another in order to stir up one another to love and good deeds. And in fact, even this verb here for stir up, it's used in some other places for inciting a riot. So this is overdone, but if I can put it this way, he's saying, watch one another very carefully and look for ways to incite a riot of love and good deeds. Just have a riot of love and good deeds break out all over the church. And Brent comes up to do announcements next week and says, Whoa, people, this love and good works thing has gotten out of hand. We can't keep up with all of them. That's what he's calling us for. This has an idea of intentional community where you're working to know one another and demonstrate very specific, practical care for one another. He says we do this not by neglecting to meet together, That is, if you just want to paraphrase it, you can't do this if you don't see one another. Over in chapter 4, he's going to say to encourage, exhort one another daily while it is today. It's one of those dangling comments here about church. I think we sometimes think it says weekly, and that's good, but he says daily. He's assuming that we're having interaction with one another on a day-by-day basis, and caring for one another. Not that any one member sees every other member of the church every day, but that we are interacting with one another on this regular basis. We're doing life together. We're not people who gather in the same building on a Sunday, but we're people who live alongside one another. We're the ones that we look to and depend on and care for and cry to and confess to and rebuke and receive rebuke and give that kind of care. And in this text, This is flowing out of the new covenant gospel. To fail to do that is to suggest we don't believe the gospel. In light of that glorious gospel, this is how we must live. Drawing near to God privately and corporately, holding fast our confession of hope, and part of how we do that is by helping one another, having brothers say to brothers and sisters to sisters, when one says, I don't know if I can hold fast, and the other says, keep on and I'll hold with you, that kind of thing. This is what we must do. 
encouraging one another, he says there, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The gospel inspires and empowers a certain sort of individual living, and it inspires and empowers a certain sort of corporate living. You can't divorce them. They both have to be there together. And this is how we live in light of that gospel to demonstrate our appreciation for it and to see it in power at work in our midst. Let me ask you to bow your heads with me to consider God's word this morning. We're going to sing a song of response as you always do. But as we pray, consider how the word of God through the spirit of God has spoken to you this morning. Maybe you're like me, and so easily you begin to take the gospel for granted, and maybe the Lord has stirred your heart, and you want to pray, oh God, forgive my cold heart and stir it afresh. Maybe there are some of those specific exhortations of drawing near to God, holding fast our confession, encouraging one another. Maybe there's something there you need to deal with. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then we'll respond in song. Father, thank you. Thank you for your gracious patience with us. None of us are gathered here today on our own strength or our own merit. We thank you that you've opened up this new and living way. And Lord, help us. Don't let our hearts grow cold. But stir them anew over the wonders of the gospel. Help us to live that out. Not in some fear of trying to earn your favor, but in delight over the fact that you have placed your favor upon us. Lord, thank you for all you're doing in this church and how I have seen these truths lived out already. But Lord, would you be at work that it might be true even more. Lord, even call people to faith today, maybe who have come and who don't know you. Some of the glorious truths of these gospels open, open their hearts that they might believe. In Jesus' name. Amen.